The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. And this is The Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert. I'm thrilled to be here today with one of my dearest friends and mentors and colleagues, Elaine Human-Gurian. Many of you may recognize the name. Elaine has been a consultant to museums worldwide. She is a noted author and speaker. She has won numerous awards, including uh, the prestigious uh, Fulbright uh, Scholarship in training for museums, and she has also uh, won the was inducted into the 100 Centennial Honor Roll of members of the American Alliance for Museums and was also honored in 2004 with the Distinguished Service to Museums Award, probably the most prestigious award in our profession. Elaine has also uh, been the acting director of the Cranbrook Institute and was the deputy director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Uh, And at the Smithsonian, she also served as Deputy Director for Public Program Planning for the National Museum of the American Indian, uh, and was also Deputy Assistant Secretary for Museums at the Smithsonian. And I can go on and on uh, with her list of accomplishments and insights into our field. I will say, however, that uh, among her many uh, uh, activities... Elaine has also been a past president of the Museum Group, which is a uh, an organization of independent museum professionals, uh, for which I am also a member. And so it is wonderful to have you on the show today, Elaine. Thank you f- so much. It's my pleasure. Elaine, one of the things that we were talking, you and I were talking about recently, uh, you were talking about the concept of good news museums. What is a, a good news museum? Well, it's the opposite of a bad news museum. <laughs> so let's... Okay. Let's All right. I'll bite. News museum. A bad news museum are those museums that have uh, been built to commemorate and reflect upon atrocities and evil doings and a long time social inequities for people who feel justifiably turns out to have been wronged. Um, A good news museum therefore is a museum that um, isn't one of those 
And um, in a conversation we've had at the museum group, I suggest maybe a very good news museum is one that exaggerates on more the celebratory part rather than a balanced view of or what is being thought about. Um, good news museums come to me because I'm quite concerned about what we define ourselves as journalism or news in which news is often about horrendous activities. Good news museums are often about the history of something or another, but they don't tend to celebrate the little person who has really made change their community. They tend to look at larger issues in which people in power have decided to change things. And I'm really interested in how we can collectively change things and how we can build civility and how each and every one of us has a role to play. So I'm interested in museums that begin to look at um, the role of citizens and how they help form civility. So is this a, a, a third type of museum? Well, no. I mean, if you look at um, the Museum of London, for example, which is a museum I've been involved in, it went from being a museum of um, the power of kings and the whole issues of how um, whole eons changed to become a museum of immigrants and the value that the crossroads of immigration had made. So in changing a direction and started to look at the whole role of how cities are transformed by those who pass through them or settle in them. That would be a transformation into a good news museum from my point of view. So it seems to me that, that what you're saying is that a good news museum is one in which many different types of people can find themselves in the experience. Is that a fair statement? Well, I, I love that statement. Um, it is my hope that museums themselves are such that people can find themselves either by overtly um, aligning themselves with the story or by metaphor, and that is that the story makes sense to them and reminds them of something in their own life. I think when we are really distant in museums, while they add to our fantasy life of lives we wish we would have but don't, they don't touch the real aspect of our regular lives. So when you... Um, kind of look at the face of real people who are making real impacts, I think it's a much easier moment than to transfer what those people have done whenever they have done it into uh, aspects of your own life. So bringing that back around to what you were, uh, to the opposite of the Good News Museum, the Bad News Museum, or those institutions that uh, serve to memorialize an atrocity or, or a, a wrong, usually a wrong uh, that has been uh, perpetrated to, you know, well, uh, th hundreds of thousands of people in the case of the Holocaust Museum, uh, how... I guess I'm. I, I guess I'm wondering. It, it, 
it would seem to me that the, uh, those those also tell a very timeless truth, and 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 many people could relate to it in some way. Well, that's that's certainly true. Um, when I was at the Holocaust Museum, watching it being born, as it were, I got to watch the process of it happening and there are very complicated nuances when a museum of bad news is being put together. Um, The first one is that the survivors of this bad event feel both obligated to tell the story on behalf of those who didn't make it but also tend to see the experience in terms of their own personal experience. So for often a decade, the survivors of these events have to work it out with each other. Story really is. So interestingly, bad news museums often take four or five or six decades to be realized there's enough distance from the event itself. Um, I've just come back from Argentina where the Museum of the Disappeared in Argentina are in fact not ready to be told in any overt way yet and in part because the story has so many of the living perpetrators around. Um, Another part of the problem is when the perpetrators themselves are alive and when they are alive and have returned to society and even more complicated when they're alive and have returned to power it's very difficult to do these museums with some distance these are as Sheikha Weinberg who created the Holocaust Museum used to say a hot in which the survivors are not particularly in a forgiving mood um, and in which the perpetrators are often not depicted as humans who did evil but more like monsters for whom the human recognition is very difficult. Um, I like to say that the word Nazi was only used during the Holocaust period, not before and not afterwards. And therefore, one could fantasize that they really are Martian down from some faraway land and having flown away again, leaving the German people behind. But the reality is they, they're a much more complicated uh, group of people who, for reasons that are themselves complicated participated on the on the wrong side of that historic story let me just interrupt you um, for for a minute because I you've touched upon something that has has always challenged me as an as an interpretive planner and uh, with with some of these memorial museums and and you've you've talked about this issue of needing time 
to for perspective, perhaps for healing, perhaps for uh, generations uh, who were directly uh, involved as perpetrators are are, are gone, so that that uh, there there's not that that fear. But I think the other thing that that concerns me is that these memorials leave me feeling that they were. In- an isolated event and that it's ended there's an end to to the holocaust memorial you know there was a date in time and then it you know it 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 was over and and as a museum goer uh i have a difficult time then relating that to my everyday life i can't connect that to something else that's that's going on in in contemporary society well, I think that's very well put and is part of my ambivalence about being associated with so many of them. Um, all of them hope that in telling the story, a lesson, and that the politics will never align quite the same, and that these will never happen again. In fact, the Holocaust itself for a long time the survivors used the term never again and yet human nature has offered us example after example in which humans are willing to engage in actions so despicable as to defy and so they don't end it's the particularity of the situation that ends and their aspirations unfortunately don't pan out. And so I I start to think about memorials as an entity. If they are not going to, in fact, chastise humanity, what is their purpose? In what way are they helping us? Now, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., because um, Shaika used a number of really interesting techniques, turn out turns out to be an institution in which one looks in an internal dialogue about your moral responsibility. And one of the techniques he used is that there's no words in any of the label writing that um, makes judgment about the action. So the action is only reported without any overlay of emotion, and the visitor is left with the imperative to ask themselves, would I have done that had I been there? How would I have reacted had I been there? And I like to say that when people go to the Holocaust Museum, they go home and return sugar to their neighbor that they forgot to return because that museum, in fact, allows them to interrogate the contemporary issues of the day and try and find their own place in it. Um, not all of these museums do. In fact, very few of them do. And in certain ways, they um, make you so sad and so upset that you wall off the experience and, as I said, move it to some location that is more Martian-like and not related to your life. So in techniques that make you think about your own life I, th- I think that's 
that is a, a challenge for for some of these institutions. And I want to leave it right there for a moment. We're going to take a break, and then we will be back with Elaine Hermangurian. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance, and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies. But 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word Talk Radio to 96362. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Hi, this is Carol Bossert, and we're back uh, at the Museum Life with my colleague and friend, guest today, Elaine Humangurian. And I wanted to mention, if you want to continue on with this conversation, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. You may also reach Elaine at egurian, that's E-G-U-R-I-A-N.com. Elaine, uh, I wanted to remind our listeners that, uh, as I had mentioned during the introduction, that you are you've written so many wonderful articles and uh, and essays. And one of my favorites uh, was published in two thousand and six. I think it's my favorite because I just love the, the concept and the name "Civilizing the Museum." Well, I I just, I've often thought that, there, and I guess I've always often misread it, that it's the civilized museum, and, and that just takes me into a whole different uh, uh, a series of thoughts of wondering, wondering what a civilized museum is. Well, I, I think we probably have a civilized museum. What I'm interested in is a civil museum. And um, civil, civility is really much closer to 
the notion of citizenship. Civilized, I think, is really an older term about behaving right and having proper etiquette. And um, my husband um, gave me the title of the book Civilizing the Museum, and I th ironically that I was spending my lifetime trying to turn the museum into something that was uh, more civil and less civilized. Um, the, the notion of what is a museum really available to everyone and how do you make a museum where everybody feels comfortable is really my notion about civility and how do we create ways of being with each other comfortable regardless of their class and regardless of their uh, previous experience, their culture, their religion, their sexual orientation, regardless of the way in which they got brought up, how is it that we build an institution that makes it welcoming? I'm very interested in the word welcome and what it might mean. How, how can a museum, in your uh, experience, be more welcoming? Well, I've spent now nearly 45 years thinking about this, and the issues have turned out to, to mean for me that there are many, many, many layers of any public institution, and the one I know best is museums, that signal to the visitor or user that they either are or are not welcome. And they are many and complex. And you can start with, where is the building? And is it surrounded by territory that um, is deemed by the community to belong to one particular group or another? And is it otherwise considered neutral territory or territory where everybody can traverse? Um, the next thing is, what does this building look like, and is it intended to be so awe-inspiring that you are going to feel cowed upon entering? Or, and, and maybe that is an interesting and one-of experience, but in that case, when you enter, how is somebody going to greet you so that while you may feel awe-inspired, you also can find your way around? Um, the level of signage inside that allows you to understand um, where the amenities are and whether there are amenities at all. Amenities meaning things like seating for older people or finding uh, cafes in which the food is within your means and at least partially recognizable. Um, are there labels that many people can read, regardless of their education level? Um, how much money is the ticket and whether you can afford it? And if you can't afford it, are there systems that make you feel like a charity case or like a welcome visitor? And it goes on and on. I mean, it turns out to be many, many, many layers that you're either welcome or you're not. 
I know one of the uh, one of the key areas that that you that you just mentioned is the ticket price of uh, of museums. I, you know, here in here in Washington right now, uh, with the government shutdown, uh, the Washington Post made a very nice list of all of the the uh, four fee museums that that people can um, can can visit with an average ticket price of about twelve or fifteen dollars a person which makes them more expensive uh, or equally expensive than a uh, uh, first-run uh, movie. And it's, uh, it's really sort of changing the, uh, the, the tenor of the town right now uh, uh, with many, many disappointed uh, uh, visitors. What has been your experience in, uh, in looking at museums that decide not to charge uh, uh, an admission fee. Does it help them be more welcoming? Well, the admission fee is the main one is what you have to pay, and I'll come back to that. But because you have to pay something, uh, you also have a kind of barrier of a means test before you can enter the place or find your way around it or make yourself comfortable there is a human who if you're really not sure about museums you might think is judging you and your wherewithal if you will notice about libraries which are all free um, your first encounter in a library is not a human being and, and that's because you're allowed to figure it out and that if you need help from a person you um, intentionally find one. The checkout desk generally in most libraries does not block your entrance. The fee itself means that for almost every family a decision to go to the museum is a one-time event. And for many, many families, it's a no-time event. And our demographic is um, not even the demographic we wish. The demographic of users of museums tend to be highly educated and in the middle class or above. And if they are not yet in the middle class, even though they're highly educated, they cannot afford museums as we now have created them. When I entered the 60s, most museums were free. The biggest change in museum use has to do with whether you're going to use it one time or whether it's going to become a local and familiar resource. We live in Washington, D.C., you and I, and therefore have the pleasure of wandering into the Smithsonian museums, which belong to all the people, and pressure about how to use the museum for the only time you're there. People who go to a museum one time and who've invested a lot of money tend to stay longer than they're really interested in and tend to look at everything regardless of what they're interested in so they can get their money's worth. That's a very different visit than the visit which says I'm going to drop in, look at what I'm interested in for as long as I'm interested in, and do something else. I sometimes say I'd like museums to be part of your day between the supermarket and the dry cleaner um, so that it becomes a real resource, a place for familiarity, a place for comfort, a, a place 
for you to get out of the rain and then have a really good time rather than a destination which you can only do once in your lifetime. That's very interesting. You know, as you were describing the, uh, we'll call it the destination museum or for those people who can only come once and they, they need to do all four floors and 12 galleries it would it reminds me a lot of when i worked in um in yellowstone uh for the national park and we were interviewing people why they had come to see old faithful the big geyser that goes off every 90 minutes and about 30% of them said because if we came to this part of the country and we didn't see old faithful when we got home, people would think that, that we had, you know, we were silly. And so we really didn't want to come here, but we knew that we had to. And they actually seemed very, very resentful. And, and, that remind, and so as you were talking about, you know, these, these people who have to come to destinations and feel that it's a destination, they've got to get their money's worth, I would think that they, at the end of the day, they would have sore feet and would be a little angry. And often children crying because they've done this longer than was the children's attention span. But it has another consequence. When you run a museum that you think is a destination, your need to change, to work with community, to uh, include everybody, to be more interactive and to have more thoughtful and longer visitation goes down. Because you know that it's a one-time event and you're just having a kind of one-off every time. So the person who comes today has the same experience as the person who came yesterday. When you are a real resource for a community, then in fact your entire programming and your overlays of programming change because you need to make it and want to make it a place for pleasure over and over again. Um, I was once in the Arctic Circle in, in the winter. It was, as you can imagine, dark and cold. And in that museum, every Sunday, they serve coffee in the main lobby and every member of the city goes there. That museum is free every Sunday for all the kids and is the town... Um, community center in the sense that they understood that once you come with coffee and once you have a kid who's having a good time, you then begin to explore the museum and each other in a very different mindset. I think I, I want to leave a couple of those thoughts in the air right now. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to explore some, some of those ideas, including the, uh, the question uh, that I hear a lot from my clients, which is, we want to be a community source and we are a dis destination because we need those tourist dollars. So let's take a break uh, and we will be back in just a moment. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? 
Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. And this is Carol Bossert, and we are back at the Museum Life. I'm here with Elaine Gurian. Uh, right before the break, Elaine was talking about the importance of uh, museums being places that think about themselves as community resources and, and community centers rather uh rather than uh, one-time destinations. And I, was, I had mentioned a little bit uh, in my practice, uh, particularly when I'm working with institutions that are brand new or uh, are small institutions trying to reinvent themselves, uh, they will off, I will uh, ask them who they want to come to the museum, and they'll say, well, we'd like local people to come, of course, but we also need, need tourists to come, and so we want to be a destination and we want to be this this uh, community resource so Elaine I'm sure you have heard similar comments uh, from your clients how do you respond um, I think you can be both and uh, the first thing I teach people is that your tourist um, season is a known quantity uh, in fact, your all seasons are known quantities. School groups, um, when um, it's bad weather and nobody is coming and the local community needs to have a place like in Umeå in northern Sweden. But um, that that's not every week. Every week, not everybody is coming all the time. The summertime or the good weather time in places that are tourist de- destinations are often the most difficult to run because that's also when school, uh, when camp groups are coming. But for the rest of the year, you pretty much know which is which and what's going on. If your exhibitions are interesting and people have never been there before, then um, that works very well for the tourists 
there are amenities that the tourist wants, the cafe and the shop, then that works very well for the tourist as well. If you are programming so it works well for the community and repeat visitation, often the tourist will find that interesting, something extra to do, and feel quite special. Um, and at the times, like in the Smithsonian, for example, in the bad inclement weather, the tourists are not local community with the exception of the holidays, but then the tourists are there in the company of a local. It's grandma, and we went to see her for Thanksgiving. And that's a very interesting mixed group because grandma knows the place pretty well, and she wants to show it off. So I think you can do both at the same time. In terms of income dollars, wanting a community to be able to use your place over and over again while you want the one-time tourist to pay money, there are a number of schemes people have looked at for a long time. One is that you can show you that they live within a certain drive radius. Um, membership is the most useful one, is the one where people understand that offering membership to libraries and social service locations allows people to arrive as members and therefore be treated as members who are themselves not able to come under any circumstances, and that works very well. In Switzerland, for example, you can have buy a membership as you pay your taxes, which is very interesting, and therefore you can be a member because you're a Swiss citizen. Having paid a small fee, you become a member to all museums in the country. So there are a number of schemes, both in the way you program and the way you do your exhibitions and the way you structure your fee. And I recommend that people program very carefully that they know what the 12-month pattern is like and that they program to meet it and special exhibitions that meet their different demographics at different times of the year so that their blockbuster, for example, happens when most educational um, special exhibition happen when most school kids will be there. And special exhibitions give you an example of how you program to meet the different aspects for calendar year. So you want to maximize the blockbuster because blockbusters actually cost money. And so you would want to have it during your highest peak use. On the other hand, there are probably exhibitions you'd like to have that would match the school curriculum better. And that would um, allow you to deepen the the local understanding and you would program those at that time. So if you pay attention to who is visiting you um, at what month and even what week and when vacations are and program accordingly, you can in fact have your place for both the tourist audience and the repeat audience. Well, that is, that is good news. 
And I'd like, but I'd like to now go back to one of the other points that you made, and that is that museums have an opportunity to be a, uh, and these are my words, not yours, but a, but a safe place to congregate and be with other people that you might not ordinarily be with. Uh, I know that I had those experiences at the Newark Museum when I was there about 25 years ago, and at the time that institution was a free institution. Uh, Now it is free for Newark, New Jersey residents only. But even so, it is a place where you can go and you can see people uh, that uh, live in different parts of of town, that have different uh, life experiences, that look a lot different uh, than uh, than I do. And I always found that uh, a refreshing and interesting part of the milieu of, of being in a in a city museum. Uh, it was something that you weren't going to get at your local library because your local library just was in your neighborhood. But if you went to the big city museum, then you would see a broader cross-section of, uh, of, of society. Well, first of all, I think going into a space and coming out safe is one of the hallmarks of the safety of a city. So when you have an unsafe city, you'll see mayors work on taking back the night or taking back the public parks. If you look at New York City, for example, the public parks are now gorgeous and filled with amenities and much used. And when I was a child, um, they were unsafe and unable to be entered. How the city allows strangers to see each other has more importance in how we can live peacefully with each other than almost anything. And it is almost the first thing to go away. Um, When there's riots in um, athletic stadiums and people won't go there anymore, that's one of the great places to see each other. Or can't go to the airport without feeling slightly uncomfortable, then I think the city is in some kind of trouble. The museum community that has worked very hard to be a safe and welcoming place, but it has worked very hard to do that for almost only those people who know how to and as I said that turns out to be the highly educated and the middle class and above it is it is um, a decision on the part of the museum itself that begins to make it welcoming for everyone in the community and for everyone in the community to begin to see each other um, Libraries work very hard at this as well, and museums have a long way to go to to be as successful as libraries to do this. The community that isn't the general demographic of middle class and highly educated will need to be welcomed in some other special way. When everybody sees everybody and enjoying all the same patrimony, you have made a huge leap into the way in which the city itself operates. You can see that in marketplaces. You can see that in um, in shopping malls. And then the city becomes something in which everybody can enjoy. 
What are some of the things uh, that museums then can learn from libraries? Um, well, what libraries do with great um, with great success is to tailor their offerings to their many communities. So if it's tax time, there'll be help in the tax um, arena. And if it's college entry time, there'll be help in the college entry arena. So the, the notion of tailoring to community need, and in fact asking community what their need is, is one thing. Having really welcoming people who are your aides and guides, the librarian is a terrifically nice person. The kind of customer service stuff that we all learn from our supermarkets and from Walmart, which works very hard on it, as does Home Depot, is very useful for us to work on. Um, if you look at Jane Jacobs and the streetscape, she would tell you that multiple entry is very important. You want people to know that you have a very good cafe and actually they could use the cafe without using the museum often gives you more patrons who then wander in the museum. I've, I've just been in Argentina where I heard stories about people coming to use the restroom because they were in a park and the closest restroom was the museum. Turning the museum from being offended that people have come to use your restroom into being delighted so that they can make your visit comfortable and you will become a museum user will in fact change the way things are going. One of the things we have to then get used to is that the public who has always used museums think in a certain way that comes to use the museum should be quite like them and should behave quite like them. And for museums to really become the, the comfortable place for everyone, the, the constant user will have to begin to understand that it will not always be the way they like. And one of the future things for us to work on is how can we have the temple of the contemplative for those who want it and have the place noisier for those of who want that. And um, we haven't gotten that far yet because we aren't as broadly used yet as I would like. Are there any examples of, of places that are trying to move in that direction? Well, you mentioned Newark, which was the place of Ainer and has for a long time worked on how to make everybody comfortable. But in fact, I think you're seeing places like the Met play with how is it that they can make everybody feel welcome. And um, I'm, I'm happy to see them do that. There are community museums where people have worked very long and hard on that. And uh, there are places like children's museums in which the demographics are, in fact, kind of larger. So no one is quite as offended to see kids running around or making noise places because it's much more expected. The place where the widest um, demographics of the community can be found is in every city. And the zoo is the widest because in a certain way, the group that has come together can remain together because the spaces are big enough. 
and animals are intrinsically interesting, and everybody knows a little bit about that. And a lot of behavior in terms of kids running around or choosing what you want to see next is available. There's things to be learned about the zoo. The zoo is also a place where you can get a number of different food opportunities, some of them simpler and some of them more exotic and some of them more expensive and some of them less. Uh, the zoo is a place where they're used to offering you purchasing opportunities which have a wide range as well. I think zoos are good places uh, to begin and you know what I think is ironic uh, is that while zoos are extremely popular and you do get a good broad cross-section, uh, our botanic gardens are probably the least visited. That depends on where they are. Uh, it is true that that people don't feel completely comfortable in botanic gardens to do what you would hope they would do, which is to picnic and to enjoy and sit around the the beautiful landscaping. And so people have to be more welcoming to start to train us all about how to use them. But I've been in uh, Canberra. Is that right? Is it Canberra? Yeah, I think so. No, it's um, Wellington, New Zealand, where the zoo has happy birthday for the teddy bears every year, and everybody comes with strollers, picnic baskets, and um, it's a completely wonderful and welcoming place. So, it de- I mean, the Botanic Garden does this. So it depends on what kind of programming and what kind of welcoming we wish to do. Well, Elaine, I think uh, that's very encouraging to know, and I think that that's a good good place uh, to end today. Uh, I would like to remind everyone that you can continue this conversation with Elaine by reaching her at egurian.com. Also, her books, uh, the uh, Civilizing the Museum, the collection writings of Elaine uh, Human Gurian is available at uh, Amazon. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com. Uh, and uh, this is the Museum Life. We'll be back next week and uh, with another exciting guest. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.